Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word that changes us. And God, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit that comes to, to take this word and make it alive in our hearts. And God, this morning we are open to you saying whatever you need to say. But Lord, please, would you just arrest our attention over this next hour or so? And, and, and would you draw us in, God, to what you're saying to each of our hearts? And Lord, even though there's some difficult things in what we're going to be talking about this morning, God, I, I know that ultimately it's for good. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bring about your goodness through this word and you'd change us by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last installment here of the sermon series, Little Foxes. And we've been talking about how little things, there's a scripture in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. He says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. You've got to catch the little foxes because a lot of times we think about big things and big sins and big problems being what affects our lives. But the truth is, is that sin always starts very small. It doesn't start with a big thing and it's just a small thing that oftentimes you think isn't that big of a deal that begins to creep into your life and bring some kind of it, it ends in destruction. Now, specifically this morning, I want to talk about Judas. And I realize I've been preaching for 10 years, y'all, and I've never preached a sermon about Judas. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of, like, who wants to? Amen. Like, who wants to talk about Judas? Nobody's naming their kid Judas. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like, I, do, I, know, I know some people, you know, that, that call their kid, that name their kid Delilah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's questionable, but you go for it if you're feeling bold enough. But nobody ends up going for Judas because... As far as we're concerned, he committed one of the greatest crimes and one of the greatest sins that have ever been committed in human history. In Dante's Inferno, I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it says that Dante says, For this dastardly deed, this individual should be in hell forever, being chewed in the mouth of the devil without ever being digested. Yeah, that's what I said. I was like, man, that's pretty heavy, Dante. I mean, gee whiz. I don't even know if the Lord feels that way about it. You know what I'm saying? I, but... We know about the story how Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Let's, let's read some of this. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50, it says this. It says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. If you skip to chapter 27, verse 3 through 5, it reads, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Acts 1.18. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Listen, I'm just reading the Bible this morning, folks. I know that's heavy, right? Amen. Now, these are difficult scriptures. You agree? Like when you read this, it's like, OK, this just sets a certain tone. And even as I was studying this uh, this this week, I was trying to put my myself into the position of even Judas. 
into the position of Jesus who knew what was going on in Judas's heart the whole time. And here's the, here's the biggest thing that I understood as I'm reading is that Judas didn't just come to a place where he was ready to betray Jesus all of a sudden. It was something that happened in the beginning, in the start. If you go back, there's something that is going on in his heart early on that becomes a progression. And if you've ever seen uh, The Passion of the Christ, the movie The Passion of the Christ, it portrays Judas in the end after he has betrayed Jesus as being tormented. He's being chased around by these little demon-possessed boys or something crazy, you know, and the devil's kind of lurking in the background. And we know that he's tormented by the decisions that he's made in our lives. And what I've noticed even as a pastor and even as somebody who has been lost in sin myself is that that's what sin will do, man. It'll drive you crazy. Small little things that get in and creep into our lives and slowly erode at our conscience and at our spirit. Finally, they get into our mind and into our soul and they begin to impact us in ways we never dreamed it would impact us. There's guilt. There is shame. There is fear. There's anxiety. There's this question of, of, of how God views me, of how other people view me. And, and depending on the level of what you feel like you've gotten into, you know, you, you, it could drive you to a place of ultimately uh, madness. And, and, and Judas is in this condition. And there's even, a, there's even a scripture in Luke chapter 22 that says that Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. And I thought about that. I'm like, my Lord, Satan entered Judas at this point. Now, here's what you have to understand about the demonic realm and every spirit that exists. Is that a spirit cannot just simply enter into a human being. Amen. It has to get that human heart to come into agreement with, with what it desires to do. The only reason Satan could enter Judas at that moment is because there had been a progression of slowly Judas coming into agreement with Satan and what he wanted to do, which was ultimately kill Jesus. Amen. So no, nobody just up and one day just is, is taken over by an evil spirit and led into a destructive path. No, there's a progression of a person slowly compromising and slowly making decisions and one little compromise here, one little action there, one little thing. And these little foxes creep in until there is this falling away. There's this progression into these habits. And Jesus would ultimately call this guy the son of perdition. He would, he would say that it would have been better if he had never even been born. Now, here's what I want you to understand is you say, well, that's Judas. That's not me. But as I'm reading this, the Holy Spirit is beginning to speak to me and saying, Clay, over and over again throughout these messages you've preached, have you understood your own frailty? Have you understood your own ability, your own inability and your own weaknesses and the fact that if you were, you could allow these little things and even put fingers on, on things that were going on in my life. He said, you could allow these little things to impact your life because he says, you got to understand the scripture says that let him who, take, who stands take heed lest he fall. That it's easy for us to be uh, sort of deceived by the things that are going on in our lives and let little things slip until finally they take control of us. There's, a, you know, Ted Bundy. I don't know if y'all heard much about Ted Bundy. This is a good sermon this morning, isn't it? We're talking about some good stuff. Oh, man. Ted Bundy. I don't even know. But, but I watched a documentary about Ted Bundy. And this guy ends up raping and murdering dozens of women throughout the country years ago, back in the 70s and 80s. And, 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 and after he does this, he ends up in prison. He's on death row. And he has a, he has a conversation with uh, James Dobson. Uh, focus on the family. And in this interview, basically what they come down to is that it didn't just start that he just woke up one day and decided, you know what, I'd like to kill people. It says that they got in a conversation and understood that really where it started was with pornography 
that was never put in check and it increased and it increased until it became violence. And what we know scientifically and psychologically now is that there is a direct link between, uh, between pornography use and the increase of it and violence and aggression, especially in males, and ultimately violent sexual acts. And that's, that's been proven. It's, it's, it's science. It's, but, but, and what am I saying? I'm not saying that everybody who fails in pornography is going to become a serial killer. Thank God. Because we'd have a lot of serial killers on our hands. But the point is, is that any little thing, if not nipped in the bud, so to speak, as Barney Five says, could potentially lead to something that is ultimately horrific in your life. So what we want to do is we want to get to the very seed of the matter before it becomes an oak tree in our lives. Amen. As Christians, we have to do that. And, and, and Satan knows the kingdom itself is like a seed. We can plant small acts of goodness just like we did in the community last Sunday. And those small acts of goodness can ultimately grow up and become something amazing. But so in the kingdom of darkness does it go that small acts of evil and little compromises here and there can grow up and become big acts of wickedness in the long run. James chapter 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now somebody would say, well, you know, it was predestined for, for, for Judas to do this particular thing. But what we know is even though God has perfect foreknowledge and we understand that there was a, a plan for Christ to be crucified, at the end, it was never God that tempted Judas. God can tempt no one with evil because there is perfect light in him. He is not the author of evil. He never tempts anybody with evil. It was Satan that was tempting him. But here's what James says. He says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. A temptation comes and oftentimes what it does is it just reveals what's in your heart. There are some things that I'm tempted by that you may not be tempted by. And all it reveals is that that, that desire is not in your heart, but it's in mine and needs to be dealt with. So it can come to test us. Then he says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. See, Judas's story ends with his own death, but it begins with something very small. It begins with just a little bit of financial impropriety. Somebody amen me this morning, right? And we'll talk a little bit about money. I told, I told Brian Jackson, I said, I'm trying, you know, we're, having, we're start, starting to have too many people in church. Let's talk about money a little bit. Amen. We, we're, we're running low on parking. Let's mention money. Amen. Just kidding. That was a joke too. Some of y'all are new. You don't know me that well. But the first thing in your notes, if you look at it, here's what I want you to put. Because the first little fox that creeps into our hearts that can cause a lot of damage is the love of money. Right? It's the love of money. And this is where it began for Judas. It was the love of money. Over and over again throughout Scripture, Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Money is actually mentioned over 800 times in Scripture. And the majority of times it's mentioned in a negative light. Even, even there are places like in the old King Jimmy, right? When it talks about money, it calls it filthy lucre. Why does it, I mean, why you got to call, why, hey James, why you got to call money filthy, bro? I mean, why you got to do that? Why, is, why you got to head at it? Because they understood the potential of what it could do in the human heart. And Jesus addresses it and he calls it over and over again, the deceitfulness of riches. Now let's make a distinction here because I, I, I really believe that most of the people that I know and most of the people that are in our church, I don't feel like most of the people have an insatiable greed or desire for money. A lot of the people I know are truly hardworking individuals who are, who are serious about providing 
for their families. Amen. So there's a difference between hard work and providing for your family and love of money. Those two things are separated. Matter of fact, wealth is often mentioned in the Bible. And the Bible even teaches that you can be very wealthy and still love God. You can be very wealthy and still love God. People throughout Scripture, Abraham, Solomon, different people throughout Scripture were very wealthy and they loved God. It wasn't that, that money itself was outright condemned or anybody pursuing a living to make money was condemned because we believe that money is a good gift of God that can be used by God and we can become generous people to help people. Matter of fact, you can't live without money, right? You can't do it. You got to have it. At some point. And God understands that. So the issue is not money itself. It's what money can ultimately do to our hearts. And that's the thing that we have to watch out for with money because, man, it is deceptive, maybe more than anything else in our lives. See, money promises freedom. Money promises ease. Money promises comfort. But with it comes anxiety and worry. The more you have, the more you have to lose. It promises security. It promises power. And in our world and generation, even our young people, like if you listen, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know, I listened to Puff Daddy a little bit. He talked about how it's all about the Benjamins, baby. And I just thought, well, maybe it is all about the Benjamins. Maybe that's what life is all about. And ultimately, I, I, will, I will venture to say this, that even though in Christian, in Christian circles and what we believe, that really we believe in Jesus, but we have a God that is closely competing with Jesus, and that is money and wealth. Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you're going to overcome in this world, you've got to learn, you've got to overcome two things. You have to overcome the fear of death, and you have to overcome the love of wealth. Those two things. If you can overcome the fear of death, and you can overcome the love of wealth, you can overcome this world. Amen. And only those two things can be done in Jesus Christ. But money promises something that ultimately it does not provide because even the richest people in the world, they're still tore up. They still ain't got no peace. Some of them end up ending their lives. I remember one rich man was asked one time how much money. He was the richest man in the world at the time. And he was asked, how much more money do you need? And he said, just, just, just a little bit more. There's never enough. You're never satisfied. And, and, and it gets in our heart and it begins to do something. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says it like this. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, there's an ongoing competition in the heart of even Christians for another Lord that seeks to make their decisions. And what we have to, what we have to discern as Christian people, I have to discern this in my life. Do I make my decisions based on money or do I make my decisions based on what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do? Amen. Y'all good with that so far? Because ultimately, it's not that God does not want me to have money. He doesn't want money to have me. And what I've noticed, especially as a, as a pastor, is I've had many opportunities in my life where I have been tempted, folks. Like, I've had other opportunities. There's been money. There's been benefits. And I don't know if you know this. Not, pastors don't make a whole lot of money. But what I have found is that God has provided for me in supernatural ways because I choose to do what His Spirit does rather than what money says I ought to do. Rather than what the world system says I ought to do. And so I don't follow the world system or what it teaches. I follow what Jesus said and what Scripture teaches. Now, again, I, I want to I say this a couple times because anytime you talk about money, people get, they get, they get whatever. 
When the Bible talks about wealth in Proverbs, it literally distinguishes between people who work hard and are diligent and it honors that and says they will receive wealth. Right. People who are diligent, who work hard and God has given them ability to work hard. It's God who has given you the power to get that wealth. It's, and that's what the scripture teaches. It says that God, it's not you that are just so smart and so brilliant that you can go out and you can get that wealth. No, God has given you the ability to get that wealth, but you've got to keep your heart in God's word so that you use that wealth for his kingdom and not your own selfish desires. And then you have to you learn how to steward it so that it does not infect your heart and become your Lord. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, look, if you, if you can't serve God and mammon, you cannot serve God and wealth. One is going to take you away from the other. He said either you'll love the one and hate the other, which means you'll either love God and you'll realize what wealth does to the human heart. And there will be a hatred for that thing that is trying to come and steal your love away from Jesus. He said, or you will dis, you will cling to the one and despise the other. And what people do that I've noticed is that they will cling to their money and despise anything or anyone that challenges its lordship in their life. Now, in, our, in this church specifically, I've got to be honest with you, the only thing, I've been here about four years now, and, and, and I can only remember us asking for money one time. You know what I'm saying? I can, that's, all, that's all I can remember. And, and, and I've been a part of churches where, the, where they ask for money. But here's what I notice about people, and, and, and I've I got to be honest with you, sometimes churches probably are greedy. Maybe a lot of pastors are greedy. I'd say maybe there's even some greed in my own heart that needs to be put in check. But what we got to understand at the end of the day is what I notice is when somebody, when, when, when people begin to talk about money, people will say to me, well, you know, the reason I left that church is all they want to do is talk about money. And I say, well, you know, maybe that's so. Maybe that church only does want to talk about money. But why are you so tore up over it is my question. Why, is you, why are you so tore up? Could it be that really they were just poking at your idol a little bit and you didn't want them to take away your hard-earned idol? Somebody ain't met me one time this morning. Now, again, this service is not going to end with me asking for your money, right? Keep it. I'm not worried about your money. I'm worried about your heart. That's true. That's true. And so Jesus deals with this over and over again throughout Scripture. And we have to we have to understand it. We have to see it. And we've, we've got to be in this position where we begin to, to know it. But but see, in order for us to break the spirit of poverty in Clay County and it's here, poverty's working through people. I, to, I told them I told them uh, I told them when we went out the other day, we are we, we go out and we're, we we say, hey, can we buy gas? You know what people say? Why? Why you won't buy my gas? Hey, you care if we buy your groceries? Pfft, what for? It's, that's not what people are crazy about. You know what? The government's handing out money. It's free. They do, they'll give it to you if you ask them for it. You know what I'm saying? It's, they, they, we need something more than money, folks. If the government, if Donald Trump called and said, hey, we're going to send Clay County $1 trillion, and, and, and I'm telling you, it wouldn't fix anything. We could put buildings up. We could put stuff up. We could put in new programs. We could have more jobs. We could bring it all in. But our hearts would be no different. It would still be infected with the same sin, the same mindsets. We would abuse the money the same way that we abuse what little we have. Because it's not an issue of needing more money. It's an issue of being transformed in our soul. We need a prosperous soul before we ever become financially prosperous. Amen. I need my heart to be changed and worked on before God can entrust me 
And you know, that's what Jesus talks about. He says, can I entrust you with, with, with money? He said, then if I can learn that I can entrust you with those things, then I can entrust you with true riches. But God wants to bring, I believe, a body of Christ into such a place of generosity that it begins to break the spirit of poverty where we hold loosely. We're good stewards of our money, but we hold it so loosely because it's not our Lord that it begins to break the spirit of poverty off of people's lives. Amen. Now, God is a good father who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The Bible says like he wants us. He wants you to enjoy things. Amen. He doesn't want you to live without it's not, that's not his desire. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. And I believe this. I believe there is a financial blessing that comes from the Lord where he is able to bless us. But it actually puts me in a position where I trust him for it. And I say, God, I'm thankful for what you've given me. I'm content with what you've given me. I'm thankful. But guess what? There's also a financial blessing that could come into my life and it could all of a sudden turn my heart from the Lord and thanksgiving to him into trusting that money and trusting what that money can do for me. And that's the battle that we face in our hearts. And when that blessing, whatever God gives me, whatever money comes into my life, whatever increase comes into my life, if it turns my heart from the Lord, it is no longer a blessing, folks. I don't care how much it is. A job is not a blessing. I don't care if you get a raise, a scantless. And that's a Clay County word right there. But I don't care if you get one of those. If it turns your heart away from the Lord, it's not a blessing. The greatest blessing is to be fully content in Christ and Christ alone. Matter of fact, when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he wasn't talking about running a marathon. He was talking about being able to live whether he has a lot or whether he has a little. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. If I'm broke and poor, I'm still content in Christ. I can do all things through Christ. If I've got much and I'm abounding, I'm still going to be able to do all things through Christ, regardless of my circumstances and situations. Now, here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. Let's read this. Now, he's talking about men who would actually come into the church, and he says they cause constant friction between people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, in the American church right now, there's a lot of people that actually in subtle ways teach that living godly lives is a way to, to, to bring in financial gain into your life. But here's what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager, eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what you see is there's, there's this desire that when a person wants to get rich. Now, i got to be honest with you, I'm not rich, but every now and then I've wanted to be rich. Y'all ever just fantasized about winning the lottery? Let's just be real this morning. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, me and my buddy back here was talking the other day. He said, you know what I'd do if I won the lottery? I said, you've been playing the lottery? No. I don't. <laughs> uh, but, but I've done that. You know what I'm saying? I've fantasized about what would happen if I was to win like $100 million. And, you, and that starts to just go and in, work into your emotions. And, oh man, and you get, you get excited about what that money can do. And, and man, and, and if you really consider it, you think about what that amount of money can do to your heart and your emotions. And then you put, compare Jesus to it. 
How excited do you get over what Jesus could possibly do in a human being's life or, or in your life? Do your emotions get as heated? It could define the battle in our war over lordship. What is actually lord of our lives? What do we get most excited about? When I think about winning a lottery, son, I could get excited. When we think about what the Lord could actually do in our community, what Jesus could do in our community, I wonder if it's the same type of emotional reaction. And it is because we have been trained by this world system, folks. We've been trained by this world system to put money on a pedestal and believe that it is the key to all of our happiness. And you have got to let that thing die if you're going to live a Christian life. You've got to learn to kill that thing if you're going to learn to live a Christian life. There are going to have to be times in your life where you trade money for Jesus, where you trade wealth or career or status or security or jobs for Jesus. Because he says, look, you brought nothing into this world. You're not going to be able to take nothing out of it. You can, he said, what we will do is, we will, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. If I can learn to be content with the clothes on my back and the food in my belly, he said, then I'm going to experience great gain if I couple that with godliness and living for God. He said, but if you begin to desire and want to be rich, that simple want to be rich opens you up for demonic activity. And he says, and you are pierced through with many sorrows and many people who have wanted to be rich have have actually departed from the faith. They've actually left Jesus and said, Jesus, at the end of the day, I love you, but you know what? I need money and I need more stuff. I had a conversation with a guy the other day and he gave me some really good insight. We were talking about how busy people are in today's world. Like People are so busy doing stuff, they have very little time for, for church or godly Christian fellowship or, or the study of scripture or prayer or anything, because the men were just so busy. Now his insight was that he said, you know, the reason people are so busy is not because they have too much to do. And we always say, well, it's because of priorities and priorities is an issue. But he argued that one of the biggest issues was materialism. And I thought about that for a minute and then, he, and then he explained it to me and he said, see, the issue, Clay, is that we live in a society where people think they need so much money to live happy that they spend all of their time seeking how to make more money to buy stuff they don't need in order to feel an empty sense of happiness. And so they pursue different avenues of how can I make more money? Because at the end of the day, I don't need a deeper relationship with Jesus. I go to church on Sunday. What I need is more money. And then praise God, everything will work out good. Amen. That's kind of the mentality of where we're at. And this is where it began for Judas. So let's, let's, let's look back to Judas. I just need to lay a little groundwork because that's the very thing that's going on in his heart. When we think about Judas, what we actually immediately link him up with is treachery and betrayal. I mean, and, and, and you know, if, if, I, I gotta be, if I'm thinking about Judas, if I'm honest... I'm thinking about a guy over in the corner, you know, like in a black trench coat, hiding a shotgun or something, listening to Marilyn Manson in his headphones or something. But he's not that kind of a guy. If we read in Scripture, he was straight laced. Dude had his shirt tucked in. He was wearing glasses. You know what I'm saying? He was carrying the financial reports. He had such business acumen that the disciples actually chose him to be the treasurer over Jesus's money. And this is how we know that money's not wrong because Jesus himself had a money box. He had a treasurer whose name was Judas. And they thought, man, Judas, this guy right here, he's straight laced. He's like an accountant. I don't know anything about business. You know, I got people in my life. I don't know anything about business. I don't know anything about money, but I got a couple of guys, man. They can do, they can do the bills and they can write, do stuff up. And, I, and I'll tell them, I'll say, man, figure this stuff out. Let's, let's look. This. And they'll take care of it. Now, they ain't no Judas's, praise God. I'll never put it. They're, they're good boys. But, uh, but the point that I'm saying is, is it, they didn't expect Judas to do anything like this. They thought Judas was the real deal, man. 
You don't put people in charge of your money if you think they're going to betray you. Amen. Who, who walks up to a guy and says, you know what? That guy right there will probably betray me. Hey, let's put him in charge of the money, you want to? Let's let him take the, the baskets over. Nobody does that. Because, because they, they trusted him. They knew what was going on. And it, it, it even says this in John 13, 29. This is the night that Judas betrayed Jesus. It said, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought... Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. So Jesus was telling him, go, do what you need to do. And they thought, since he had the money box, that he was saying, go buy something for the poor or buy something for the festival. And, and that was what's going on. But see, it started with something very small for Judas. Maybe he's just fudging a little bit on the expense reports, not turning everything in on taxes, just taking a little bit for, from the box for himself. And, and a little sin... That started there, it led to something else. It led to jealousy. You say, well, what do you mean jealousy? Well, if I read the whole story of Judas, one of the things that I read is a very interesting thing. Six days before Passover, six days before Jesus is going to the cross, he goes and visits his friend, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as he's and Lazarus has been raised from the dead and, 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 and he's visiting them and they provide food for him and for his 12 disciples. And as they're eating there, Mary comes into the living room and breaks open this box of alabaster ointment to wash his feet. And she puts that ointment all up. And, and it says that the fragrance filled the whole room. And Judas knew. He said, boys, that right there is a year's wages. Now, I want, imagine what you make in a year. Imagine somebody bringing that in a suitcase and dumping that right here on the floor. You'd probably freak out a little bit too. And, 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 and Judas looks at this and he says, what is this woman doing? What's this, what's this act of worship that's going on? And here's what, what it says in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. But one of his disciples, as this is going on, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Notice what it says. This he said, not that he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was in it, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And Judas, I, I, I bet if, if, you're, if you're picturing this scene, this woman breaking this one year's worth of, of, of ointment to anoint Jesus for his burial. That scent going throughout there. Everybody in the room knowing, man, this is either a great act of worship or one of the stupidest acts ever because that's a year's worth of wages being poured out, poured out upon him. And Judas is all upset. He thinks he's going to put her in her place. He says, hey, 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 hey. Shouldn't that be given to the poor? I mean, let's be good stewards of the finances. But what we notice about Judas, the scripture even reveals it. He didn't say that because he cared for the poor. Have you ever noticed that my, most of the most critical people, they don't care really about the poor or anybody else. They just want to criticize what you're doing with your money. Somebody amen me, right? The people who complain the most are not the ones who are really wanting to do the good. They just got something in their own heart that they're dealing with. And so they got to point out something for somebody else. They're the ones that got to bring the criticism and the complaint and the judgmentalism and all of these things because something else is going on in their lives. And see, here's, here's what Jesus says. He said, the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have with you always. What's he insinuating? He's insinuating, hey, Judas, you want to give some money to the poor? 
Go take your money and bless the poor. What you don't understand is that the poor are going to be with you always. What he, what he allows us to know, he lets us in on a, on a little secret. Until Jesus comes back, there's always going to be poverty. And there's always going to be people struggling. And there's always going to be people that, that need to make ends meet. And here's what you got to understand is that the church exists to help those people. Amen. We are supposed to help the poor. Jesus is not saying don't help the poor, but he's saying there is something far more important than helping the poor, and that is being in love with Jesus Christ because at the end of this life, you can't take money with you. You can't take a gallon of milk with you. You can't take a cheeseburger with you. The only thing that you can take with you is your relationship with Jesus Christ. So we are called to help the poor, but man, we got to have our hearts in line with Jesus and our worship to be toward him and not toward the money that was in that alabaster box. But see, that, affect, that affected Judas's heart. And Judas at this point, see, that love of money now is taking root in his heart and leading to other forms of evil, just like the Scripture says. Now he's jealous. Now he's angry. Why? He's angry because Jesus has corrected him publicly in front of other people. God forbid. Y'all ever had to correct somebody? It don't work out well most of the time. Just about everybody, I mean, and with the exception of a few people, I've actually, uh, you know, had to try to bring a little bit of correction, and I've done it in kind. I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy, y'all. But almost every time you do that, if a person's heart is not in the right place, then they, t they, they, they don't take it so well. They get angry. They leave. They break relationship with you. They're not willing to listen. And Jesus brings this correction in his life, and you know, I always love quoting Proverbs 12.1 in the New King James Version. He who hates correction is stupid. Amen. That's what it says. You can read it. When you hate correction, though, there's something else that happens in your heart. And, and Judas doesn't take this correction well. And it stung and this impropriety in his heart and his love for money led to jealousy and indignation. And that's, that's the second point. You got love of money as a little fox, but the second one is you go from greed to jealousy to indignation from greed to jealousy to indignation y'all ever been that way and let, let me let, let me hit on this some of, some of y'all I'm gonna say all of us you compare yourself to other people you compare yourself to how much somebody how much money somebody else makes you compare yourself to the kind of house they got and then you get a little bit jealous and sometimes if you don't correct it you might even find yourself getting a little bit angry and talking bad about that person Somebody amen me this morning. I know you love this. This is good. This is good for your soul. And it goes from greed to jealousy to indignation. And, 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 and he's angry now. And he's saying, how dare you make me feel bad in front of my own friends? And I bet you at this point that Judas even believes his own justification. I bet he even believes that he really cares about the poor. And he doesn't. All he wants is a little money. He knows that he could have took in, taken that alabaster box, went and sold that for a year's wages, and at least hit a quarter of it for himself and took it for himself. He knows what's going on. Now, if you read these different ones, immediately after this, Mark's gospel picks it up in the narrative. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 10 through 11, as soon as this happens, as soon as Jesus calls him out, it says in verse 10, Mark 14, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. So he, see, he was boiling, man. He's like, you know what? You're going to do me like that, Jesus? I'm going to the chief priests. And it says, when they, were heard, when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray them. And you know what they were going to pay him to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. 
So I looked this up because I don't know what 30 pieces of silver is worth. Any of y'all got 30 pieces of silver? I looked it up and it turns out that 30 pieces of silver today, if you had 30 pieces of silver, it would be worth about $197.40. He betrayed him for $197.40 in today's world. It could have been more back then, I don't know. I know that based on the book of Exodus, 30 pieces of, the, of silver was a price that you would pay for a slave. In other words, he's so angry, he says, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll sell him to you for the price of a slave. And that stuff's going on in his heart. And he takes, what he doesn't realize is what he's selling for the price of a slave, which is, is ultimately what is going to enslave himself. And, and I just believe, I th I'm thinking about Jesus, I thought to myself, you know what, compromise after compromise, he's gotten into a place where he's numb, where he's past feeling, where he's, where he's dealing with something. And he comes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, the one who loves you so much, the one who loves me so much, is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Father, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he's praying this incessantly. And the sin of the world is coming upon him in that garden to the point that he's sweating great drops of blood. And when he stands up and those, those, those centurion guards come in with Judas walking with them and he tells them, the one that I go up and kiss, that's the one that you need to seize. And he walks up and Jesus says, why have you come, friend? He calls him friend. I don't know, I messed up while I was reading that, man. Because I start seeing the love of Jesus. I, you know in that moment, you know in that moment, Jesus still loves Judas. That may be the most difficult part of the story. And, and Judas says, Rabbi, not once in all of the scriptures did one of his disciples ever call him Rabbi. They always called him Lord. Something happened in his heart. Well, now he's not even elevating him as Lord anymore. He just calls him good teacher. He brings it down just a notch. He kisses him on the cheek and they take him in and Jesus begins to go. Now, no doubt Judas is probably thinking at this point, Jesus can get out of this. Man, I've seen people surround Jesus and him just pass through the midst of them. Jesus can do miracles. I mean, he's raised the dead. He can get out of this. I, I, at least I can make a quick extra buck since he took the alabaster box and just wasted it and let her bust it all over the floor. I can make a quick $197 and he'll get out of it and everything will be fine. And see, a lot of commentaries, if you read... Judas probably thought not only could he get out of it, but Judas didn't want Jesus to be a suffering, dying savior. He wanted to be a savior that would come in, start a revolution, overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a new government and maybe even put him in control of the money over the government. Amen. He wanted something different than what Jesus wanted. But here's at the end of the day, Judas didn't want Jesus as Lord. He wanted himself as Lord and, Jews, and, and Jesus to do his bidding. Now, that's the thing that you got to ask yourself. Do you want Jesus as Lord or do you want to be Lord and Jesus to do what you want? Right? Consider that for a moment. See, the more we ignore God's voice, the harder it becomes to hear God's voice. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. See, you can get to the place where you override the Spirit of God working in your heart so long and for such a long time where you begin to grow numb. 
He says there's a group of people that actually there's small compromises where they're overriding the voice of the Lord over and over again until their conscience becomes seared as with a hot iron. And here's what I want you to understand, too, is that there's a I believe there was a point in my life because I remember even as a young man having a conscience, dude, where if, if, if I messed up, if I did one of the slightest things, I would feel so terrible. And I started diving into sinful acts over and over and over and over again until no longer did that conscience have anything to say. And I could do some of the craziest stuff you could ever imagine, and I was never bothered by it. But let me tell you something about the grace of God, is that even when somebody has a conscience that is seared with a hot iron, the voice of the Lord can penetrate that seared conscience, and He can begin to release His grace into that heart, and that person can turn to Jesus and be saved and be restored and be transformed. And that's what we're believing God for for people. Amen? We believe that even for Judas. And see, Judas, Judas got to a place where his conscience was seared, where something was going on in his life that was difficult. And, and, and it was hard for him to come back. But we know that, this, this, that for people, it's not the end. Even Peter denied Jesus three times. But yet, Jesus was able to restore him. And here's, here's the last point on this, on this before I go into the end here. And that's opportunity. See, Judas was never without opportunity. We like to think, well, this was fixed. And, and in some ways it was. In some ways we understand that there was a foreknowledge of God that Jesus was going to the cross and there were certain things that were going to happen. But God foresaw everything that was going, through, going to happen. But at the end of the day, Judas was just a human being like you and I. He had opportunities. Jesus washes his feet at the Last Supper. Jesus calls him friend. Jesus speaks to him. I believe he had just betrayed him. Think about this. Judas had just betrayed Jesus. He comes in to eat the Last Supper with him, and Judas, is, 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 his feet are washed by Jesus as if to say, I still love you. I still am giving you an opportunity to turn. He called him friend. But see, the scripture says in Proverbs 29:1, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. And that's what Judas was doing. A little bit of love of money crept into his heart. It led to jealousy. It led to greed. And it led to indignation. And then finally, he replaced the Lord of his life, Jesus Christ, with the Lord of money. And it led him down a bad path. Now, let me, let me close this this way. Let me give you two takeaway truths from this whole story. And the first one is, it's easier to squash a seed than it is to remove a tree. It's easier to squash a seed than it is to remove a a tree. And I had a couple of pictures for you, but our internet went out this morning. Amen. PRTC. They're supposed to be good. They promised like a hundred, you know what I'm saying? And they went out this morning. Somebody needs to give them a call. I don't know. But I had, I had these two pictures for you. One of them was, it, it's a redwood tree. Y'all ever seen a redwood tree? Like I, they saw, I saw this picture and literally they're 20 feet wide. They're about as wide as this stage. And, 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 and they're 350 foot high. And these things get so big that they hold 34,000 gallons of water. That's unreal, isn't it? That, that, that when fire breaks out in a redwood forest, fire can't even bring a redwood down. It's so strong, so big, it's so resilient that fire can't bring it down. You can't run a, run a car into it and bring that sucker down. That redwood is going to stay strong. But if you look at it, you would imagine a seed of a redwood would be just like, you know, you'd have to bring it in like this and plant it. But the seed of a redwood can fit right here in the palm of your hand. And it can become one of the biggest things in the world. And you know, there are redwood trees that are alive today that were here when Jesus walked the earth. And it's amazing. But the point of the matter is, is that 
it's much easier to kill a seed than it is to kill something that's grown up that big. And you want to be able to deal with the things. You want to have such a tender heart because of your communion with the Lord that you want to have such a tender heart because of your communion with the Lord that he can just tap on your shoulder and say, this little thing right here, this little thing right here is, 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 is becoming an issue. This little thing, you need to deal with it. You need to begin to address this thing. And here's the second one. Being associated with Jesus is no guarantee that you are a follower of Jesus. Being associated with Jesus is no guarantee that you're a follower of Jesus. See, Judas had been three years with Jesus. He had seen every miracle, heard every sermon. He had even operated under the same power of the Spirit, and he himself healed the sick and seen miracles happen. He'd been with Jesus those three years. And I think this is why he was filled with such remorse because at the end of the day, I believe Judas knew that Jesus was the real deal. I believe that Judas believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But the problem was there was a lordship issue and he was associated with Jesus, but he was not following Jesus because Jesus had never taken lordship of his heart because he had a, a redwood tree of the love of money and greed in his heart that was blocking that lordship. And see, God starts and he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And I'm so thankful. I hope you're thankful because I know that there are many times, even when I was young, I've turned from the Lord. I decided to go a different path. I rejected it when my conscience was dealing with me about something, when the Holy Spirit was dealing with me about something. But I just pray this morning that somebody, this is our last sermon in this series, praise God. But what I'm believing God for is that he's helping somebody get down to the root and say, this thing is still in seed form. But if you let this go much longer it's going to start to take root and grow up in your life and you can't let that get in your relationships you can't let that get in your marriage you can't let that get in your home you can't let that get in your mind it's a little fox that is seeking to get into your life and spoil the vine and there's nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus money is not more important than your relationship with Jesus your job is not more important than your relationship with Jesus you need a relationship with Jesus because this world is wrapping up folks this world is wrapping up and you cannot take anything here with you. The only thing you can take with you is your relationship with Jesus and that's where it's at. Amen? I want you to bow your heads just for a moment. I want us to pray together through this.